This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. First was lockdowns, then masks. Next big fight tied to the pandemic will be the vaccine passports. And that fight is only likely to intensify as one of the biggest cruise lines in the world is now requiring some sort of vaccination proof. Bad news for AstraZeneca could mean more bad news for the global vaccination effort. Regulators in the EU say they found these possible links between AstraZeneca's vaccine and blood clots. New research out of Ireland shows an incredibly low risk of COVID transmission in outdoor settings. But what happens if you're sitting shoulder to shoulder in a in a ballpark packed with some 50,000 people? And why are evangelical Christians one of the most skeptical groups of Americans when it comes to getting vaccinated? Remember those days cramming for the SATs? <laughs> yeah, that may not happen to some students. The pandemic has changed the way students apply to schools as many colleges are moving to make standardized tests optional. But first, let's start with the so-called vaccine passports. They're supposed to serve as proof of vaccination that is increasingly being required by businesses. But several Republican governors are already vowing to block passports in their states. We've got Dr. Marcus Plesha, chief medical officer at the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials, and Jay Stanley, senior policy analyst at the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Doctor, let's start with you and let's just do the medical point of view. Does it make sense to have something like this, a vaccine passport? Well, it makes sense to have some kind of system that can allow people to verify that they've been vaccinated in whatever situations that may be necessary. And I would say that our, our biggest focus or stance, our organization's biggest focus or stance on this right now is to make sure that that system is consistent and reliable. You know, these kinds of health-related information systems are things that public health traditionally does, and we want to make sure this one is done well so that the, whatever information and however it's used, it can be trusted. So when you say this one is done well, are you frustrated that there's like 20 different ones being worked on and that the administration seems a little hesitant to put their full force behind it and say, yes, we're either doing this or we're not because it's a little wishy-washy right now? Yeah, we are concerned about that. I mean, ultimately, we're going to need a system that works. And we've had a lot of challenges with the public health data systems. So, you know, we need... We need time, we need resources, and we need leadership to really push this forward and make sure it's something that meets the expectations of the American people. One of the questions, Jay Stanley, that I keep hearing people uh, ask in the past couple of weeks, ever since this whole notion started getting a lot of publicity, uh, vaccine passports, variations of, can they do that? Can the schools do that? Can my employer do that? Can a government aid? Can the airlines make us have a vaccine passport? So you're the legal guy. Can they? As a legal matter, they probably can in many circumstances, although a lot of it has not been litigated. Um, our view is that there are narrow circumstances in which it's legitimate to require people to prove that they've been vaccinated. Um, but we don't want to see that overdone. I think that the, the main focus of our country right now should be getting to herd immunity so that COVID becomes like other dangerous diseases, whether it's um, polio or, or measles or what have you, where most of the time we don't worry about it. We do have school vaccinations, um, but we don't 
think about those diseases every time we go into a crowd. And we, that's where we need to get with COVID. Um, it's true, we don't know what twists and turns this pandemic will take. Um, and that's something we're just gonna have to see. But um, I think it's a little premature to think about creating a whole system of a, a checkpoint society where we have passports and have to show them to do everything in life. Well, that's the, that's the criticism, right? That it, it separates, it fragments even more. And this should be a personal decision and you can't ban people from doing all these things that they want to do just because they didn't get the vaccine. Yeah, I think that, you know, there, there are different criteria that you should look at when you evaluate whether somebody wants to, um, you know, require a vaccination. You look at something like a cruise ship, um, that's a quasi-private, non-essential um, facility. I mean, for example, if I want to have a party and require that all my friends be vaccinated, I can certainly do that as a private party. Now, if you're talking about requiring it for essential facilities like subways, buses, um, potentially even planes, that's when you get into equity issues. I mean, right now, a lot of people haven't had a chance to have a vaccine. And we know that the vaccine uh, rollout has not been equitable. Uh, poor people, people of color are not getting vaccinated at the same rates as sort of wealthy white people. Um, and so there will be a lot of unfairness in um, requiring a vaccine to access essential facilities right now. Um, and, you know, we have to, and, and I think that the questions around what and where and when and who can require somebody to be vaccinated are a whole separate set of questions about a vaccine passport, which is the question of how do you prove that you've been vaccinated? You could have a very good COVID passport or a very bad one, and both are potentials. Um, and that's a whole separate question from when and where that passport is used. Continuing our conversation about vaccine passports, when Norwegian Cruise Lines announced that it would require all passengers and crew be vaccinated before being allowed on their ships, its CEO said vaccinations are the primary vehicle for Americans to get back to their everyday lives. But not everyone agrees that vaccinations should be required to get back to normal. Dr. Plesha, Jay Stanley, still with us. Doctor, Jay was mentioning, you know, how do we know we, there's a difference between uh, having a valid so-called vaccination passport? How does that prove that you necessarily got vaccinated that could be counterfeit? But there are other medical issues, too, right? I mean, even if you had a so-called uh, passport that shows you were vaccinated, we still don't know, A, how long immunity lasts. We don't know, B, uh, whether or not somebody vaccinated can still be an asymptomatic spreader of the virus. So what would it really mean? Well, there are a lot of things that we don't know about the COVID vaccine and about COVID in general right now. And, you know, I, I agree very strongly with what Jay Stanley just said of, you know, this is, this is a bit of a premature conversation because, you know, so few people have still even had an opportunity to be vaccinated. And, you know, certainly it's not fair to have to require vaccination for everybody when it's not available for everybody. And, you know, the, the whole issue of needing to make sure this is equitable and fair is, is important too. Now that said, I mean, there are a lot of things we don't know about the vaccine, but I think we are increasingly becoming more and more confident that it appears to work very well. Uh, like other vaccines, it probably does confer some kind of fairly long immunity. Uh, you know, as we learn more about that, as we learn more about things like variants, it may be that we'll have boosters for the vaccine, just as we 
you know, have a different version of the influenza, the flu vac vaccination every year. So some of this will transpire, but you know, it's a good vaccine. And I think it's gonna be challenging to figure out, you know, when we're gonna have the expectation that people have to be vaccinated in certain settings and when we're not. Doctor, let's take that idea though and let's flip it because we've actually heard from some other experts who have said, you know what, maybe it's not premature to have this discussion. Maybe we're too late to the game. Over the next couple months, if a lot of people do get their vaccines, maybe things look better by, you know, summer, and then these events are going to happen one way or another, you can safely assume that most people maybe have their vaccines or they just didn't get some, and that's a segment of the population. But we're not going to be able to institute something like this in time for when we are scaled up to where we want to be. I agree that we need to start working on it now. And I, I think that our main, our association's main concern is, you know, we, we're going to need some kind of system. There are going to be situations where it'll be important to be able to verify people's vaccination status. And our main focus right now is trying to make sure we have a system that people can rely on, that's accurate, that's that's verifiable, that's secure. Um, and I think if we if we develop that, then we'll be ready for whatever we decide as a nation of, uh, you know, where we're going to have those kinds of requirements. You know, Jay, I, I'm always somewhat amazed, maybe I shouldn't be, about the lack of, of uh, knowledge of history that most or many Americans have, because we've been through this discussion before. Uh, we were through this discussion in the early part of the 1900s, late part of the 1800s, actually, and early part of the 1900s because of smallpox. And in fact, wasn't there a 1905 Supreme Court ruling on this very matter? Yeah, the court ruled that it was legitimate to force a man to get vaccinated against smallpox. And I think that, that has been a precedent that has continued to apply. And I mean, it's there's widespread practice of uh, across the country of requiring vaccinations for school enrollment. Um, we at the ACLU, we, we think that, you know, people should have control over their own medical care and that there is a very high bar before you uh, force or pressure somebody to get a vaccine. Um, but in this, in this case of this disease, that bar is probably met. It is a dangerous disease um, and your civil liberties end where, um, I mean, your rights end when it when it comes to endangering other people. So we are watching all this like a hawk and we are continuing to be worried about abuses, but we do accept that there can be cases. If you wanna work in a cancer ward where you're working with immunocompromised patients, for example, it's probably legitimate to insist that you get vaccinated. Um, but that said, uh, and, and there are gonna be legitimate times and places where people have to prove that they've been vaccinated. People have always had to prove they've been vaccinated. Um, I guess I'm not 100% convinced that the previous systems that we've used for the past 100 years are so broken that we have to create a new system. And if we do create a new system, we need to make sure that it's not exclusively digital because a lot of people don't have smartphones. A surprising number of people don't have smartphones, that it, that it includes a paper-based system, um, that it's decentralized and open source um, and doesn't invade privacy in all kinds of new ways. Jay Stanley at the ACLU, Dr. Marcus Plesham, Chief Medical Officer, the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine candidate is now in legitimate trouble after EU drug regulators say there's a possible link to a serious blood clotting disorder. 
And now public health officials in the United Kingdom are recommending that anyone under 30 not take AstraZeneca's vaccine. Dr. Cody Meisner, pediatric infectious disease specialist at Tufts University, member of the FDA's vaccine advisory panel. So take us through this because it's confusing. It's, it's supposed to be a good vaccine. They say, you know, it still has benefits, but it's not for everybody. So what do you think about it? Well, it's become a very complicated uh, uh, introduction. And um, it looks as though um, even after many missteps by the vaccine manufacturer, that there may in fact be uh, a real association with this uh, central venous sinus thrombosis or uh, abnormal clotting that occurs. It's important for your listeners to, to know that this is specific to the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is not available in the United States. This has not passed um, FDA review yet. Uh, uh, and it's hard to predict what's gonna happen in the future. But yes, it, it does seem as though this vaccine is associated with abnormal clotting. And it's a very rare occurrence, but it does, I think from what we're hearing, it does appear to be a real association, which is extremely unfortunate because this vaccine is really needed on a worldwide basis. Ah, we don't... And, and, well, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that, doctor, because that was the point I was just about to bring up, that even though the AstraZeneca vaccine is not yet available, and who knows, maybe it won't be uh, in the U.S., it wasn't it designed in effect to be the kind of workhorse of vaccines for much of the world because it's cheaper to produce than the uh, Pfizer and Moderna ones. It's easier uh, to handle, could be kept in a physician's office. This was supposed to be kind of the backbone, wasn't it? Yes, you're absolutely right. And w everyone was excited and uh, optimistic about having this vaccine because there are <clears throat> seven and a half billion people on the globe. And as many people as want to be vaccinated, we want to supply the vaccine. So this um, was anticipated to, to fill a big gap in the need for this vaccine. As you pointed out, in the United States, we have three vaccines, Moderna and uh, Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson or Johansson, which are <clears throat> not associated, I just, I wanna reemphasize that, not associated with this abnormal uh, thrombosis. And we know that after millions and millions of doses have been administered in, in, in this country. But this vaccine is so important for the rest of the world. So what do you do? You weigh the complications from, from getting COVID versus this or, or clotting from COVID versus the likelihood here? I mean, there's also other medications that run a risk of, of giving you similar kind of clots. So you run the numbers and, and see what it looks like? Well, that's what it's going to come down to. And I think the benefit of the AstraZeneca vaccine outweighs any risk of harm by a thousandfold. That is, you're less likely to die from a clot uh, than you are from COVID-19 in a community that, that doesn't have a good uptake of the vaccine. 
But the problem is um, it, it, it's going to, I think it's going to uh, make people reluctant to receive that vaccine. They will, people, we don't want people to look at it as an inferior or uh, less safe vaccine than other vaccines. But the concern is that people may see it that way and not elect to receive the vaccine, even though the benefit still far, far outweighs the risk of harm. Dr. Cody Meisner, pediatric infectious disease specialist, Tufts University. New research from Ireland reviewed every documented case of coronavirus infection in the country and determined that a mere 0.1% of infections occurred in outdoor settings. Now, the takeaway is that risk of COVID transmission in most outdoor settings is extremely low. But remember, not every outdoor setting is the same. Dr. Sean Clouston, professor of family, population, and preventative medicine at Stony Brook Medicine's public health program. He's done extensive testing on transmission outside. So, doctor, if if you're sitting in the stadium, to use that example from earlier, shoulder to shoulder, yelling and cheering, how low is the risk? Uh, It's pretty low, um, but it's not zero. I think one of the things that happens is that people assume that, you know, that everything is either there, like it's risky or it's not. Um, and this is one of those things where the risk is lower because it's outside, but it's not nothing. And there are some things that you could um, help to understand that risk. So if the air is stale, like it, it's not moving around, then the risk is higher. It's in essence more like being inside, uh, uh, inside a, a really big place. Yeah. So it's like being inside. And that's why we worry about the air inside. And that's why we think about ventilation. So what else do we have to think about when in terms of this, you know, risk calculation that we're all supposed to be doing? Uh, we mentioned shoulder to shoulder. So is it how close you are to somebody? Is you mentioned if the wind's blowing, if it's not? I think we think of like gas clouds coming out of our mouth and when we think of coronavirus. But if it goes into the air, there's a lot more air than whatever I'm putting out, right? Yeah, for sure. And that's great. You know, like uh, it definitely reduces risk when there's a lot more air, but there are other things. And so being like you say, shoulder to shoulder, I mean, obviously that increases the risk. If you can smell a person's breath, probably you can also breathe in what they're, you know, putting out. And, uh, and so uh, being a little bit further away matters. Uh, Having that risk, even a little fan would help. Uh, And um, uh, and, you know, if it really is about being packed in, wearing a mask would help. You know, I, I, I don't, you know, masks are great for this type of thing. So um, but you know, is it, I, I but, doubt that people want to wear it when it's hot, though. But, but, <laughs> but is, it, is it silly then for some communities uh, that insist, for example, here in uh, Southern California, in, in L.A. County, we're supposed to wear masks anytime we are outside if we think we're going to be in close proximity, you know, under six feet, I suppose, uh, in distance from another human being. And in Southern California, that's going to happen more often than not. Uh, but but is that silly then? I don't think it's silly. Um, you know, ultimately, it's about whether or not you get sick and whether or not, you know, how bad that is. Uh, and so if you're going to be close to someone, you know, uh, wearing a mask is not a, a lot to ask. Um but, you know, some days are better than others. If you're sitting out there and, and the sun is intense and there's not no breeze, there's nothing, 
then you know the, the mask may be more important than if you're sitting on a beach and there's a nice breeze coming in and you know and you're uh, you know then then I think the mask might be less important but you know ultimately it's your own safety so you know if it's about wearing a mask and then you can be next to a person well that seems like a fairly easy trade-off let's talk about the beaches because i guess you're supposed to technically if you're out there on the sand wear a mask but nobody does because you're at the beach and the wind is blowing we had somebody on the show even a long time ago i think give us the example of you know if you're going to spread this at the beach it's because the music's playing and you're in a tent and you're yelling at somebody like hey man how's it going today (laughs) that's when you give coronavirus to somebody but if you're out there with your family or your friends and you lay down the towels well it's probably a different story yeah, I would agree. Uh, you know, I think there are things that happen on the beach that um, that are riskier, you know, so like, like you say, sort of sitting on the beach, you know, maybe a couple of feet away, and there's a wind blowing, that's less risky than, for example, going to a, you know, the uh, concession stand or something like that. And, you know, uh, which is often protected from the wind. And, uh, and, you know, sort of standing there and talking to your to your friend within three feet, no mask, you know, those are different activities, right? Or using the bathroom, <laughs> you know? And so the, the mask, it allows you to do those other things, I think, you know, safely and, uh, you know, and maybe make up for some of that risk that you're taking when you're just hanging out with your friends. And I also think there's a difference between, you know, going to a beach um, uh, when there's, you know, a lot of space between the groups and, 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 and there is a consistent wind versus like what you see in, uh, in some beaches where there's, you know, uh, there's just people layered on top of each other. Uh, and, you know, and then there's umbrellas and, and, you know, maybe a thousand people between you and the water, right? Yeah. Uh, that's a very different experience. And the problem with some of those is that, um, you know, as a whole wind and, and airflow can, uh, blow away the COVID, um, uh, the virus particles, but uh, when they blow it away, they can also blow it. If it's especially a slow wind, they can kind of blow it uh, to people that are in the immediate vicinity. So if you're, you know, um, downwind from someone who's just, you know, not that far away from you, then you know you might want to increase your your distance a little bit as well. Dr. Uh, Sean Clouston, Professor of Family, Population, Preventative Medicine, Stony Brook Medicine's Public Health Program. If you can smell someone's breath, stay away from them. When we come back, why are evangelical Christians the most likely group to reject the COVID vaccines? Plus, the pandemic has forced some universities to make standardized tests optional. You're listening to Coronavirus Daily on Odyssey. At the leadership level among American evangelical Christians, the message has been pretty consistent. Go get your COVID vaccination for the sake of you, your family, and your, and your congregation. Even so, vaccine skepticism is more widespread among white evangelicals than almost any other major block of Americans. Jared Cornut, senior pastor at the Plymouth Park Baptist Church in Irving, Texas. So let's start at your church. How are things there? Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. Things are going well at our church. Uh, we have a congregation of about 450 Many of them have gotten their shots, either one dose or both, or they've gotten the Johnson & Johnson. And we're starting to see folks actually come back uh, to almost semi-normal semi attendance. Okay, so you're having good luck with that. But there is an issue, is there not, with many uh, evangelicals around the country. What is the issue that they have? Do you understand it? I think it's incredibly nuanced because when you're talking about evangelical, you're talking about several different denominations of groups that believe a lot of different things. 
And so when it comes to Southern Baptists, I'm not seeing a lot of apprehension in my own convention, though there are some who might say this is apocalyptic, it could be the mark of the beast, uh, but I would say that's very fringe people. Uh, and I think there's an ethical question that a lot of Southern Baptists ask, uh, you know, were aborted fetal tissue used in the process of developing these vaccines? And that's the question they want to ask. But I think uh, when you start looking at more charismatic groups, there's other issues there. So it really, it's really, really nuanced. So have you been confronted with some of these thoughts from some, some of your parishioners? And, and then what did you respond to them by saying? Right. Yeah, so um, none really about the Mark of the Beast uh, stuff and the end of times, the revelation. Uh, people ask questions about the ethical um, basis of these vaccines. And what I tell our church is that uh, I have a undergraduate degree in political science and history. I have a theology degree and I'm working on a doctorate in historical theology. I'm not a doctor. So you really need to talk to your doctor about these questions. For the way I understand it, uh, there was no aborted fetal tissue, uh, for, uh, aborted fetal tissues used in the uh, Pfizer and Moderna. And so if your doctor says it's safe and it's for you, then you need to listen to your doctor. You mentioned that there there seems to be an issue more with uh, charismatic uh, evangelicals. Uh, do you know why that would be? Yeah, and that's, that's kind of anecdotal on my bit. But I think for a lot of them, there is this issue maybe perhaps with God has given us this earth. He's given us everything that we need. So if I take my vitamins, if I eat properly then my body can fight the virus so i don't really need to do these things and certain things that are made by science uh some of these groups have been taught to distrust and so they question those things so i, I think that is a, a big part of it there there seems to be a distrust with some of those groups when it comes to science or the thought that maybe and or the thought that maybe these were were rushed that's something we keep hearing but but now we're almost at the point that they've gone to yeah. the arms of so many people right Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't heard that. You know, most of our people have said, get it in me as soon as possible because I want life to return as quickly as possible. This is Texas where I'm at. People are ready to get out and do things, not be cooped up in their house all the time. And so our people have, uh, I would say, I'd estimate 70 percent of our people have gotten their vaccine. All right. So with, with that many, do you notice a, a kind of, I don't know, a, a difference in mood come Sunday morning? I noticed the difference, you know, Sunday was Easter. And so uh, it was our largest crowd that we've had since March of last year. Uh, you know, we were online for a while. We've been doing the distance thing, you know, taping off our, our seats and making sure people social distance. But uh, Sunday, several people said it was electric in here today. You know, people were singing and people were vaccinated. People were back. And when the room is more full, it just feels better. And so, yeah, I noticed a difference this past Sunday. Maybe that's the answer then right or or why isn't it in more places that if this is the thing that gets you back in the building then it's not you know a medical standpoint or skeptical right. or whatever it's, it's well, like would, the mission right people want to go to church they want to do this then this is what gets you into church and that's what i've told our congregation you know we, we wear masks right now we said if you're not vaccinated you need to continue to wear your mask we've been listening to doctors in our church we've been consulting an infectious disease doctor here in dallas on what we need to do to keep our congregation safe and we haven't had any outbreaks or anything like that in our church uh, thank goodness and i always tell them if the, this is the smallest thing i need to do for example wear a mask so i can worship with my church then i'm willing to do that or to make somebody feel comfortable and I think that's what a lot of pastors are saying. If the vaccine is safe, get it so we can get back to the work that we're called to do and gathering together. But I think for some of those fringe groups, they're probably meeting without masks and without the vaccine anyways. And so nothing stopped them from doing the way you know, life as normal for them. 
All right, Jared Cornett, Senior Pastor, Plymouth Park Baptist Church in Irving, Texas. Pastor, thanks for coming on the show and uh, talking to us. The majority of colleges and universities have temporarily eliminated the standardized testing requirement for admission because of the pandemic. Now, this might look like a small move, but it's having a big ripple effect for students. KYW's Suzanne Monahan asks Application Nation founder Sarah Harbison what the move means and who it's affecting. Talk a little bit about some of what the changes are that we're seeing with regards to the standardized testing for colleges, the ACT, the SAT. Yeah, lots of changes right now. So the vast majority of colleges and universities, as we all know, uh, adopted a temporary test optional policy for the current high school seniors. But over half of the U.S. colleges and universities at this point have extended that test optional policy for the current high school juniors. So that is from fairtest.org, which is a nonprofit organization that has been supporting uh, test optional policies for decades. So what that tells you is as we go into this next admission cycle, we can almost anticipate that, again, the majority of colleges will have a test optional policy. And it's interesting because there are pockets of the country where the ACT and SAT are quite available and accessible. Again, it depends on where you live, but I know some high school juniors that have taken the SAT or ACT two or three times already. And then there are other high school juniors, especially, you know, in parts of California, for example, that haven't have been closed out of every test that they've registered for. So what that tells you is that colleges are trying to be accommodating for those high school juniors, maybe even more accommodating than one might think. But there's always an ulterior motive when it comes to the colleges. They um, are probably gathering information because they know that they've been um, the recipient of some wonderful admissions statistics this year. A lot of the more selective colleges um, are seeing enormous applicant pools, number one, and they're also seeing great strides in the number of students of color apply as well. And so for them to just stop this, you know, embarrassment of riches, you know, would actually harm them you know, to go back to what it was a year before where application totals were actually on the decline is not something that they want. So there is an ulterior motive here. I think they still want to take advantage of those enormous applicant pools and seeing the types of students that they want in their applicant pool, but they probably are also trying to gather as much information and data because they know that one year of a test optional policy is not enough to evaluate what kind of impact it has on the institution. So my guess is they'd love to have more than one year of data to be able to see you know, how these high school seniors do when they get to college. I was a Dean of Admissions of a test optional college and we had you know, a decade, decade or more of data looking at the students um, GPAs after freshman year of college. And what we would do is we would look to see, you know, did they submit scores when they applied to college or not? 
And what we saw, at least at Franklin and Marshall College, was that the students who did not submit test scores when they applied performed just as well after a freshman year of college or at the end of freshman year of college as those students who submitted test scores. But we were lucky. We had, you know, years of data. And my um, my guess is that these colleges want to collect as much data as they can because they're seeing applicant pools they've been hoping for for years. So this could be the be- just the beginning of what you're saying, basically a whittling away of the standardized test requirement? I think for right now, we're going to see colleges use a test optional policy instead of a test blind policy, although there are a couple of exceptions out there. Uh, Reed College is a test blind college, meaning that they do not look at any test scores in the admissions process. Cornell University actually has a number of undergraduate schools I don't know if it's an even split down the middle, but about half of their undergraduate programs are going to be test optional, half are, half are going to be test blind in the coming year, and that was the case this, this current year. So test blind policies are still pretty unusual. I think we're going to see, I think we're going to see more colleges adopt a permanent test optional policy, which would suggest that standardized testing is beginning to um, it's it's not going to have the power that it had in the past. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Did you ever have that that nightmare uh, that you were still like studying for, or you missed taking the SAT? You know what mine is. Yeah. I'm still failing high school statistics. It comes back every once in a while. You know, I have that same thing, except I actually did fail. <laughs> <laughs>